Hi, this is Estelle Erasmus, your host for Freelance Writing Direct. In this short, soundbite-filled podcast, I'll cover everything the freelance and creative writer and author needs to do to move forward with their writing, their creativity, and their career. Through conversations with guests, we'll cover tips, tricks and actionable strategies so join me every week and grow your business and build your craft with freelance writing direct and don't forget to subscribe rate and review on itunes and spotify Hi, everybody. This is Estelle Erasmus, and I'm your host for Freelance Writing Direct. And I'm also the author of Writing That Gets Noticed, Find Your Voice, Become a Better Storyteller, Get Published. And today we are going to talk about writing history, writing about historical subjects. And my guest is Audrey Claire Farley. And I want to tell you a little bit about Audrey. She's a writer, editor, and scholar of 20th century American culture with special interests in science and religion. She earned a PhD in English literature at University of Maryland College Park. She now teaches US history at Mount St. Mary's University. She is the author most recently, we actually share a pub date of June 13th, of this book, Girls and Their Monsters, The Janine Quadruplets and the Making of Madness in America, which was reviewed in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Review of Books, Associated Press, and Times Literary Supplement. Her own essays have appeared in The Atlantic, New Republic, Washington Post, and many other outlets. She lives in Hanover, Pennsylvania, and you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Audrey C. Farley, F-A-R-L-E-Y, and I will put those in the show notes. And wow, it's so good to have you on the program, Audrey. Thank you so much for having me, Estelle. And we connected when you were teaching a history class, writing history for the now defunct teaching site, Catapult, which still, I believe, has other aspects that are alive, but not the teaching. And I would speak about pitching to your class. So I always enjoy doing that. Yes, hopefully I can resurrect that class in some form and and you can join it again. Absolutely. I read this book and when I was younger, I read a lot of biographies and I read history books and Amelia Earhart and all those, but I wouldn't naturally read a historical fiction book unless the subject was really riveting to me. And actually, I found this subject pretty riveting. I was always a fan of Shirley Temple. I grew up watching Shirley Temple Theater and singing the songs that she did. She was this child during the Depression who kind of started the trend. I mean, they had those little Berkeley tops or whatever movies, but she started the trend of these children being a kind of a vehicle for people's hopes, fears, dreams, worries. And I think that connecting it with girls and their monsters of these quadruplets who really were born to entertain or born to be 
the the object of people's well we don't know what until we read the book but we find out a lot that is truly disturbing but also makes complete sense and you set up such a cultural context that it's very easy to understand why they were put in the position that they were in with uneducated parents who really had no other way of ego gratification besides having these four little girls to be, again, the vehicle of all their hopes and dreams and fears and worries. And what happens when girls grow up who are central, central to the parent's life is the parents don't want to let them grow up. And that leads to what happened to these girls that you talk about in this book. So can you talk a little bit about, A, how a writer such as yourself, who's written other historical books with historical subjects, came up with, with this concept and this particular time in history? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for that question. Well, I got the idea for the book from my mom, who was reading Bob Coker's bestseller from a few years ago, Hidden Valley Road. And that's also about a family, many of the members of whom developed schizophrenia. I think there were like 12 kids and six of them became schizophrenic. And in that book, he mentioned the story of the Janine quadruplets, who were also all diagnosed with schizophrenia, all four of them, in their 20s, which caught the attention of the National Institute of Mental Health, where they came for study. And they, they were studied there for three years, and it was so extensive. It was doll play, handwriting analysis, psychotherapy sessions all kinds of, of different diagnostic tools. And so my mom thought it would make a great book because the researchers had initially thought, here's a sure case of the genetics or the inheritance of mental illness because they're quadruplets, they have the same DNA, and they all became mentally ill. But that hypothesis was quickly complicated when they learned that the girls had been extensively abused primarily by their father, but also by other people in their town. And they lived in what I describe as a kind of house of horrors. So the their case became known in psychology and psychiatric circles as this example of nature versus nurture and how you can really separate the two. And I have to admit that I wasn't initially that interested in their story because I thought this the nature nurture question, you know, has been beaten to death. And what was I going to add to that? I'm not a psychologist. You know, what could I contribute to that conversation? But I looked up the case nevertheless, and I quickly came across the kind of details that you were talking about, which is the way that these girls were made to be the emblems for American society. So they were born in 1930, right at the height of the Depression, and the town really lays claim to them from the beginning. People would come to their house at all hours of the night and peer in the windows, treating them as if they were this kind of carnival show. When they got older, they began to sing and dance, 
And this is the era of Jim Crow. It's also the height of the eugenics movement, actually the near height, which was really in the 1920s. And so a lot of the mythology that was projected onto these girls was an expression of a lot of the racial anxieties of the day. So for instance, these girls, and you can picture them looking so much like Shirley Temple or Jean Benet of our day with these cute little curls and these short skirts and all dolled up. And they, you know, in one case opened for minstrel performers. So you have these sweet little girls embodying innocence and then a show which just rehearses the most hateful stereotypes about Black men, which is that they are a threat to white girlhood, which was, of course, the logic that was supposedly undergirding Jim Crow, that you know we can't have an integrated society because we need to keep the white girls safe. So it very quickly became clear to me that long before these girls had become the poster girls of psychiatric genetics, they were the poster girls of another uh, deeply potent mythology in America. And so that's what I wanted to explore. And, and you really did. I mean, in such depth. Now, I believe there was one that sort of survived the mental illness. I think Sarah was her name. And she even got married, maybe not to such a great man, but she seems to have a good or had a good relationship with her son mm -hmm. and was protective of her sisters, even to the end. I think they're all gone now, but it just seems that how did she get out? You know what I mean? She She was diagnosed just like all of them. It's just fascinating to me that she found the resilience somehow to break free of the psychological chains that they just didn't have anybody to help them get out of it until it was much too late to really refashion what they thought of as their reality. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't surprise me that Sarah was also one of the favored daughters the mother admitted to the researchers at, at the National Institute of Mental Health that Sarah was her favorite, and she had the best outcome. By contrast, the sister that was the worst treated, Helen, who was beaten and abused and even taken to a doctor who operated on her because she was masturbating and they decided she was oversexed, she had the worst outcomes. And so she spent most of her life institutionalized and had nothing approximating, you know, a normal life the way that Sarah did. It's so sad. I mean, it, it, it is really tragic, but you really used research in a very, in a way that moved the story forward. And you also employed narrative. Can you talk a little bit about how you structured the book, decided to do it for maximum impact, because it, at the end of the day, this is not a medical journal. This is for consumer readers. So you had to take some very complex information and package it in a way that got the reader's attention and kept them engrossed, which it does. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. 
So the book begins with um, someone from the NIMH coming to their home when it's kind of like a madhouse. All four of the sisters have already been diagnosed and there's just this very eerie vibe in the house. The parents are giving them barbiturates to help keep them under control. And after that scene and, you know, the revelation that they're going to be studied at NIMH, then I go back in time to their mom's story, trace her, meeting the dad, the birth of the quadruplets, and it's mostly chronological. So I think that what I try to do, knowing that this is for trade readers, is to really foreground the story and let the history and the cultural context come up from below. So that's hard to do, and I'm unsuccessful at it at certain points in the narrative, I can admit that. But I think that the, the, the sections and the chapters of the book that readers love the most are when the plot is propelling things forward. Just what is happening in these women's lives? What's their day-to-day? -day, what is happening in their heads? And talking about things like Shirley Temple and the background of Jim Crow and eugenics, letting it come up naturally in the narrative rather than having this more top-down approach where, you know, the history and the cultural context is being imposed on the story. So that was the goal. And how about the research? Like, the, how did you approach it and integrate it? Well, my biggest source was a book that had been published about them in 1963 after they were studied. One of the lead researchers, David Rosenthal, published the 600-page book, which told a lot about their lives and even recaptured their dialogue. So, you know, I didn't invent any anything that was in quotation marks was real, and a lot of that was coming from his book. I also was able to gain access to their medical records at NIMH because Sarah's still alive and she signed off for me to receive those. And I made extensive use of old newspapers. I have a subscription to newspapers.com, which I recommend to every writer of history because it's only about $75 for six months and it collects hundreds of different newspapers dating back, I think, to the 1800s. And that was so integral for this story because it is so much about the way that these girls were perceived by the public. And so I was constantly looking for news stories about them, which, of course, portrayed the family as being this picture-perfect family, even after, you know, they had you know, become mentally ill, the story was, it was always these puff pieces about the girls. And I also was able to interview Sarah and her surviving son. And I interviewed the children of David Rosenthal, the psychologist. So those were the sources, interviews, newspapers, books. And was Sarah, I mean, you have a lot of very personal information about Helen, Wilma, even more so, you know, in the sexuality of Wilma and Helen and 
its development or you know where it stopped and sometimes they switched people and you know things like that did Sarah share that or was that was that from diaries or writings or other places that was mostly from the psychologist book and from the medical notes okay and you know when i first made contact with her she still kind of she was very, first of all, very interested that somebody had found her after all these years, because she has faded out of public memory as multiples have become less of a novelty because of IVF and all these things. It's just not that story worthy. So she was very intrigued that somebody was writing a book or wanted to write a book and wanted to speak with me all the time. But she also wanted to embody that newspaper image of, you know, everything's perfect and focus on her accomplishments. And this is a, a really cute little anecdote. One time after we'd had a long phone conversation and we hung up, she quickly called me back and said, honey, did you know I could type so many words per minute? And I know this many tunes by piano. And it was like, she wanted all of her accomplishments to be, to be made known. And I said, you know, we'll get that in the story, but I had to be forthcoming with her and say, you know, I, I want to tell the parts of the story that haven't gotten told yet. And I think that over time, and also because of her son, who also believed that, you know, the truth is worth telling, yeah. uh, that she was able to, to come to that feeling herself that, that the truth deserved to be told. And you had a revelation in the book about her son, which I'm not going to give away, but it really continues to tie in what happened to these women with how they then acted or acted out and the victims of, I guess, the father and society and all that just kept propagating. Mm -hmm. So what, like, is this a two-year project, a three-year, a 10-year project? How long did it, does it take one to write this kind of in-depth historical, but also narrative and research-based book? This took me about 18 months, but working long days, sometimes 10, 12 hours a day, I tend to be very careful about what projects I take on. It needs to be one that I'm able to sit with every day without losing interest. If somebody is interested in writing about a historical subject in the way that you do, what are some of your recommendations? Because writers of all interests and genre listen to and watch the podcast. So some of them may be writing a lot or they may be published or well-published. Some of them may just be starting out. So what is some of your advice? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm drawn to books and I think many publishers are as well that have two components. One, a very engaging story that can stand on its own legs. You know, this one was very sensational, but that also has something that's intellectually provocative about it. So the so what of the story, not just a curious case, but a curious case that tells us 
something about the world, maybe something uncomfortable, maybe a hard truth. Uh, so I would certainly encourage people to choose stories that uh, have both of those parts. And I would also encourage people to choose stories that have enough material or research for a full book. You know, there are a lot of really curious cases from history which make for a great essay, but there's just not enough there for the book. And sometimes you don't discover that right away, which means then you have to fill gaps in the narrative. And how do you do that and keep the book within the genre of fiction? If you didn't have Sarah to speak with, do you think you still could have moved forward with this project? I think I could have, but there are still parts of the book where chunks of their lives are unaccounted for. You know, like there's, it's just like, there's so much of the day to day with the girls and the beginning of the book. And then later in their lives, I just didn't know as much about what happened then. And those are the parts where I would kind of fall back on the history telling or the cultural analysis and, you know, I'll be honest, those are the parts of the book that readers like less because they want the plot, they want the yeah. story. So, you know, it's it's just another lesson to me as a writer to be very deliberate in the choosing of the topic and really being sure that there's enough of the story for, you know, a full-blown book, which is usually at least 70,000 words. Wow. I mean, it's very clear that the girls were victims before they could even speak of everything. Was Sarah overly protective? I know she's protective of her image. Was she protective of them as well? She was protective of them, but I think that she she had a kind of survivor's guilt about getting well. She once said to me, I felt so bad that they couldn't keep up with me. And I think that she came to view the book as a way of doing justice to them and telling the truth about them and, and how they were hurt. You know, you've, you've hinted at the fact that, you know, some of the bad stuff they endured became cyclical. But I think that she understood that they were very mentally ill and they never had the chance to become well the way that she did right it's just interesting because she had the same parents she had the but like you said she was favored a little bit more so is Edna and Edna didn't make it out that yeah. way it's it's really fascinating I think it's a real expose of the time and the culture and and what people had to deal with and it's a, a warning to not just look at something face value, to really uh, look underneath, to make sure that society is setting up the situation in the right way, I guess would be. Do you feel that there's a lesson in the story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that one of the major themes of the book is that we as a society love to sensationalize the abuse of children. So under Jim Crow, 
you know, this image of this totally barbarous black man that's going to get our white girls. And that's why we have to have segregation. We love to talk about the abuse of children as something that they do. So as a way of demonizing whoever society's outsiders are, whether that's black men or homosexuals or, you know, trans people today, society is much less comfortable to talk about the abuse that experts tell us is most common, which is at the hands of familiar people in familiar spaces, brothers, fathers, uncles, priests scout leaders, things like that. And I, and so I think that that is one of the, the themes of the book is just confronting readers with that fact. And, and it's a fascinating psychological analysis, not only of the girls, but of the parents, because you really delve into the marital relationship and the power structure between the father and the mother. And I think that that's really deft writing to be able to, to put that into the story as well. So, you know, the villain is not exactly sympathetic, but you just understand more about the background and what creates somebody who's like that. You know, you don't have to agree with it or want it or think it's good, it's still evil, but just the mm-hmm. understanding of, you know, how it occurred is the way that society, I suppose, could avoid making those same mistakes. Mm-hmm. So you teach historical writing. Can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of things that you cover in mm-hmm. such a type of a class? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because my background is not in history. I have a PhD in literary studies, actually, and I only began writing about history about five or six years ago, in part because it was easier to place those kinds of stories as a freelancer, but I really enjoyed it. And I began teaching the class for other people like me who maybe had a story in their head, but they weren't confident because they didn't major in history, much less have a history PhD, and wanted to have the confidence to write about and interpret history. And so I started teaching this class for Catapult, and many academics did come to the class. There were lawyers in the class, including ones who had found or always remembered a case from law school decades ago that had been just burrowed in their imagination. And they were thinking about writing a book or an article about it. And so I think that, you know, the class is about helping people to gain confidence to write about history, even if that's not their background, about finding stories that are, as we said, both emotionally charged or, you know, have an alluring plot, but that also teach us something about the world or that have a so what. And encouraging writers to see that with trade books, you don't have to have this earth shattering thesis. It doesn't have to be this major intervention in scholarship 
which is something that we academics are pressured to do. You know, when you write a thesis or a dissertation or an academic book, it's got to be something nobody's ever done before. And I think people assume the same of trade publishing, but that's not the case. You know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be totally new under the sun. When you say trade publishing, can you yeah. clarify? Because I think of it as consumer publishing because it's yeah. available on Amazon. It's available for everyone to yes. get. So it's not just psychologists getting it. Or To me, that's trade, like within an Yeah, yeah. So can you explain what you well, mean? Well, I guess maybe you're maybe I'm using the word incorrectly, but I understand it as being not a university press. Right. Yeah. So either one of the big five publishers or one of the many independent publishers, but a book that's finding a popular audience. So that's I, I see that as consumer publishing, not trade. Okay. But, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I'll have to look up. Maybe there's a different book publishing definition. When I think of magazines, trade mm -hmm. is within a niche. That's what. Oh, I'm interesting. Yeah. Do you actually work with them on pieces that they write and then you go over it with them and tell them where they're, you know, what they should do to either enhance the history, the research, the narrative, something like that? Yes. So in that class. The goal was to produce an essay by the end of the course, and the, the course was about six weeks long. So we talk about how to conceive of a story, how to craft a pitch, and then going about the first draft revision, we have a workshop with peers. Right. And, and so the goal of, at the end is to have an essay. And in, in some cases, people are hoping the essay is going to become a book. Awesome. And the... There are venues, not that many for historical essays, but there are venues, I guess. Atlas Obscura. I think. Atlas Obscura, narratively, of course, where I used to edit for. They have a hidden history section and you've written for them before. And what other, some of the other places, can you remember? Long Reads is a good one. Long Reads. I, I wonder if Guardian might have some aspects of that. Yeah, I don't know. I know that Washington Post had a section made by history, which actually just closed this week, but the editors are going to start it up at another big publication. They haven't announced yet, but I'm going to keep an eye on that. Okay, that's great. So we have covered a lot and um, this is really a fascinating topic and it's fascinating to hear about writing history. Any other writing tips you want to share? I would just encourage people to do what works for them and not to get too hung up on what works for other writers. Yeah. I personally am an early morning writer. Once I have a cup of coffee, I can start going. Even during the school year, before my kids wake up, I'll get a half hour in then. But that doesn't work for everybody. So I think that people should just trust themselves and their own process and, and try not to you know make yourself this writer who has different habits. Good advice. I was recently on a podcast. It's called Mom End with Suzanne and Missy. And they had this little thing that they end with that I actually really liked. And I'm kind of appropriating it now for my podcast. It's what you're reading, listening, or watching and buying. So why don't you say what you're reading? Then I'll say what I'm reading. And then, and then we can go to the next one. 
Sure. So I'm reading Bishops and Bodies Reproductive Care in American Catholic Hospitals, which is about the stealth takeover of public hospitals by the Catholic institutions. And often these hospitals will have names that are intended to obscure their Catholic identity. So they'll call themselves Providence Health or Dignity Health, something that doesn't sound as explicitly Catholic as, say, St. Mary's. And so patients will go to these hospitals not even realizing that they're religiously affiliated until it comes to a crisis. You know, a woman needs miscarriage care. She has an ectopic pregnancy or something. And then suddenly the care that she receives is totally shaped by the U.S. bishops in America. Interesting. Well, I haven't really started reading it yet, but I'm fascinated by the TikTok allure of Colleen Hoover. Mm. And so I recently ordered a couple of her books just to get a sense of what all the bruja is, because mm -hmm. my daughter, who's 14, is crazy for her work. Other people are. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I do a podcast and I'm a writing teacher. And what about listening? Are you watching or listening to anything these days? TV, uh, TikTok, anything? Uh, I just finished a Netflix documentary called The Deepest Breath, which is about uh, deep sea diving. And that is very haunting. People will go down as far as 102 meters into the ocean on a single breath. And apparently the deeper you are, the more it compresses your lungs and it sucks you down. So you really have to be psychologically trained to be sucked down in the ocean, because if you freak out and you take a breath and you're down there, you're dead, right? Because you've got one breath that takes you all the way down and all the way up. So that was a pretty riveting documentary. Oh, wow. I have a much lighter fare. <laughs> I've become obsessed with suits. I mean, the thing finished oh. four years ago. Meghan Markle. <laughs> Megan Markle, Gabriel Moft, I think his name is. And I, you know, didn't, I never knew about it. I mean, I kind of heard about it in the cultural context of Megan Markle, but I just, somebody said something and I was like, let me check it out. And I'm obsessed. I'm on season five. There are eight seasons on Netflix. And then you have to go to Amazon Prime for the ninth season because they, the streaming deal didn't go to Netflix yet for them, but it probably will. And it's, it's fascinating. It's a psychological study, really, of these lawyers and how they play power games. I'm always fascinated by psychology and how that's wielded. And, and, and it's lawyer stuff and romance and all sorts of different things and bromance as well. So, and it's funny and it's entertaining and Megan, she's in it and I think she's okay. She's good. I don't watch it for her per se, but she's not, she doesn't hurt it, I don't think. And now they're talking, they may actually do a reprisal. They may oh. do a part two or a movie or something. I don't know if she'll be in it, but a, an article came out in the Washington Post about it. So I think that's kind of fascinating. They said it's the show of the summer, a show that ended four years ago. So there you have it. Yeah. So yeah. what about, are you buying anything lately? So I'm trying not to buy a whole lot because we're moving. And so I'm saving money for that. But I did recently on Amazon Prime Day, I did 
try to buy household stuff that was deeply discounted. And so I was shopping for a backsplash. I'm trying to, you know, the builder, they try to make thousands of dollars off of you with these different parts of the house. So whatever part I can say no to and then do my own cheaply, that's what I'm trying to do. I took a trip, a bucket list trip with my husband to Japan. And when I was in Japan, it was very hot. And I think we were in Tokyo. We went from Tokyo and we also were in Kyoto. And we were with the tour guide and I started getting, feeling a little faint. And she took one of these little towelettes and wet it. And it was like a neck towelette that stays cool. So I wore it around. It looked like a blue like tie or something. And I wore, and it's so funny, my husband was wearing a blue shirt. So it kind of looked like I matched him. But I wore that and I came back and people were buying them for their trips when they were going somewhere. And so I, I just purchased them on Amazon recently. I think I just looked for cooling neck towelettes and I bought that and I also bought a little handheld fan to like carry with me because sometimes you'll just get overwhelmed and I figured this is a way to stop it so Mm -hmm. yeah that sounds very useful it was great talking to you about your book and for my YouTube watchers I'm holding it out here and thanks again thank you Estelle Follow me at EstelleSErasmus.com on my website and on social media, which is Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at EstelleSErasmus. And we're now on YouTube for Freelance Writing Direct. Follow along and soon everyone will be reading what you're writing.